Father, each one of us here this morning needs that as well. We, we come here to worship You, to praise You, to, to offer our anxieties and burdens to You, but Father, we also come here because we know we need Your guidance in our lives. We, we too want to walk according to Your will, and we want to walk in step with the way You've created us to live and the way You've you require us to live. And so, Father, we pray that You would help us this morning as, as we come to Your Word, that, that You would convict us where we need to be convicted and that You would guide us where we need to be led. And, Father, that, that You would speak to us through Your Word so that we could leave here as people who've heard You speak and whose hearts have been changed and who are walking in the power of Your Spirit to follow You. And so, Father, we pray it now that, that anything that could distract us from, from hearing You speak this morning, any of our own fears and frustrations or anxieties or even just the busyness of life, Father, that You would just push all that off to the side now so that we could hear You speak clearly and powerfully to each one of us because we want to hear You, Father. So, Father, we pray that You would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, we're moving on to the next chapter of John. So we're looking at John 7, verses 1 through 13. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them up to John 7. Otherwise, they will be on the screen as well. John 7, verses 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the miracles that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to the feast because for me the right time has not yet fully come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. As I was kind of preparing for my sermon this week, I was thinking back to this moment I had, I don't know, probably about 20 years ago. Maybe not quite 20 years ago, but I remember having this moment where where the Holy Spirit really convicted me, um, kind of cut me to the heart, brought me to my knees um, to make 
uh, make a particular commitment to, to God. And it wasn't like one event that kind of led to it. I look back on it and it was like a series of things kind of building up over a nine-month period where he was just kind of working on me, working on me, working on me. And, and a, big part of, a big part of it resulted kind of around the beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism. Right? So the Heidelberg Catechism begins and says, what's your only comfort in life and in death? Right? And the first four words, five words, that I am not my own. And I wrestled with that for a long time. What does that mean that I'm not my own? And what does that look like to live like I'm not my own on a daily basis? Um, and I was, eventually I, I was reading through John Calvin, as you guys know I, I do, and, uh, and he has this really good quote that really helped me Help me understand that. I'm, I want to share it. He says, he says this, If we're not our own, but the Lord's, it's plain both what errors to be shunned and, and what end the actions of our lives ought to be directed. And then he says, We're not our own. Therefore, neither is our own reason or will to rule our acts and counsels. We're not our own. Therefore, Let us not make it our goal or our end to seek what may be agreeable to our carnal nature. We're not our own. Therefore, as far as possible, let us forget ourselves and the things that are ours. On the other hand, we are God's. Let us therefore live and die to Him. We're God's. Therefore, let His wisdom and will preside over all our actions. We are God's. To Him then... As the only legitimate end, let every part of our life be directed. And I remember reading that, and I remember making this commitment. It sounds a lot like Ruth's commitment to Naomi, where I went, okay, Lord, to the best of my ability, because I know I'm not going to do this perfectly, but to the best of my ability, I make a commitment to you. I will go where you tell me to go. I will do what you tell me to do, and I will say what you tell me to say. That's my commitment, because I'm not my own. I belong to you. But at, and that, that is kind of, at, at, in a way, that's kind of the commitment of, of a Christian, even though we don't always think of it that way. But, but after you make a commitment like that, you find out there's, there's a problem that comes right away after that. Um, and the problem is, okay, how do I know what God wants me to do? <laughs> How do I know where God wants me to go? How do I know what God wants me to say, right? Or, or, or the kind of common question that I hear a lot is, like, how do I know what God's will is, right? How do I know what God's will is for my life? And you hear, you know, when I was a youth pastor, I heard that all the time as kids were getting ready to graduate. They're like, I don't know what I want to do for the rest of my life. How do I know what God wants me to do? Or, or you hear college students wondering, like, should I marry this person or not? Is it the right time to marry? What, what's God's will? Or, or people are wondering about whether they should quit a job or move jobs or move houses. People start asking that question. What's, how do I know God's will? And to be honest, we should probably ask it more, right? I think, I think to be honest, that's a question we should be asking constantly throughout the day is what is God's will in this moment because, well, we're not our own. And so it's a question that kind of hangs there, and yet, 
Now, with all of that buildup, I'm actually not going to talk about how to figure out God's will this morning. But what I am going to talk about is something that will always hinder us from being able to understand God's will. That, that there's, there's something that will prevent us from seeing things clearly and actually being able to understand God's will and God's timing in our life. And, and I'm going to share, I want to share it with you from another passage, but it is uh, very clearly in the passage we're looking at this morning. But I think if we look at it from this other passage, we'll see it a little easier uh, this morning. Um, and here's the passage from Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so on the one hand, this passage is teaching, all right, if if you want to understand the will of God, if you want to know God's timing and all of that, you need to make sure you're not conformed to the world. That, that, that your mind is transformed, right? And so the opposite of that's also true. If you are conformed to the world, if you are worldly, if you're like everyone else in the world, guess what you're not going to be able to do? You're not going to be able to discern the will of God. You'll be blinded to it. You'll miss it. You'll, you'll never quite get God's timing and God's plans and God's purposes it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fog everything up so that you never end up actually being able to, to live in that reality. And, and I'm setting it up that way because that's what we see happening in this conversation between Jesus and his brothers um, in, in our passage this morning. Um, his brothers, and it could be cousins, it adds, they use brothers to describe close family, but either way, we'll just say brothers because that's what it's... A, but his brothers are blinded to reality and they're blinded to God's plans and purposes because they, they've been conformed to the world. Um, and that's why they, they give Jesus this advice. Like, here's their ministry plan for Jesus. Okay? They say, Jesus, leave here, get out of Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples also may see the works you're doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And we can look at this and we can go, makes sense, right? Like if you want people to know who you are, you shouldn't be going around in podunk little places. You should get out there where the people are and, and do stuff, and then people will see you and, and follow you. And, and what's really interesting is we have to make sure we, we see all this in context because remember, they're giving Jesus this advice after what just happened. All of his disciples left him except for 12, right? So we're talking, he had a congregation, who knows how big his congregation is. Let's say he had 200 disciples, we'll just take a guess. It could have been more, could have been less. We'll say 200, he preached a sermon And all of them left but 12. And his brothers probably are bothered by this. They're like, oh no. (laughs) Jesus lost all of his disciples. This is not good. We need to do something. We need to be his marketers. We need to show him like, here's how you need to do ministry, Jesus. If you're going to draw a crowd to yourself, 
And so you just lost everybody. You need, to, you need to build up again. And lo and behold, guess what's going on right now? The, there's a feast in Jerusalem, and every Jew is going to be going to Jerusalem. They're all going to be gathered there. And if you just go into Jerusalem and do the things that you do, do some signs and miracles, then everyone's going to follow you, and, and you're going to get disciples again. You're going to get like influence and power again. It's going to be... It's going to be great. Just do that, Jesus. But John gives us a hint that this is a bad idea because he, right after this he says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And so John's showing us, even though like our gut is like, that sounds like good advice. John's saying, that's not good advice. The only reason his brothers were saying this is because they actually didn't believe who he was. They had been around Jesus for a long time, right? basically his whole life. He's the older brother, so, but they've been around him most of his life. They've seen him, and yet they still don't believe in him. They don't believe he is who he is. And that's the only reason they would give this kind of advice because they don't actually believe Jesus is who he says he is. And besides, one of the things that we're going to see when Jesus starts to correct them, Jesus starts to point out to them that even though this grand ministry plan that they came up with sounds really great, it actually isn't in line with reality. Uh, Because even though Jesus was doing all of his signs and miracles in podunk little towns around Israel, there were large crowds following him, right? I mean, when he did the, when he did the, the loaves and the fishes miracle, we said there was probably fifteen to 20,000 people there, right? And so even though he was out in the desert where there was no food, there were thousands of people following him and he was doing signs and miracles in front of thousands of people. And how many of them were following him? None. It was only the 12 that were left. And so, even though it sounds like, Jesus, go to this huge crowd of people and do your miracles, they'll follow you. Jesus points out to them, no, that's actually not how this works. You you guys don't understand the opposition that there is to Jesus. They don't understand the hardness of people's hearts. They don't understand their blindness. And so, so, Jesus kind of rebukes his brothers. He says, This, my time's not yet come, but your time's always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Um, There's a lot, there's a lot in that passage. And, um, but the first thing I want you to notice, notice that Jesus is contrasting himself with his brothers and everything, right? He says, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. There's a difference between Jesus and his brothers. He says, the world hates me, but you guys, my brothers, the world cannot hate you. And part of the reason why he's kind of setting himself against his brothers is he's saying, you guys aren't seeing things rightly. You're not seeing things accurately because they don't actually believe in him. And so he begins and he says, my time has not yet come, but your time is is always here, which is kind of a, a weird saying. And, uh, 
But you start to understand it a little bit more, and I don't want to get too far down into the weeds, but, but I think it's helpful because Greek has different words for time, right? There, there's three of them. It's aura, which sounds a lot like Spanish, right? Aura, there's chronos, and there's kairos, okay? And usually when John is talking about time, when we hear Jesus, Jesus will typically say, my hour has not yet come. That's aura. And when Jesus says that, I would say 98% of the time Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection. Uh, But that's not what he says here. He says, my kairos has not yet come, which that word's always kind of used to God's timing, like kind of God's providential ruling over our lives, his sovereignty. Like it's the kind of question that when people are asking, is it time for me to quit my job or not? That's kind of one of those kairos moments. And so Jesus is saying, not, it's not my time to die yet, even though that's part of it. He's saying, this isn't God's appointed time for me to go to Jerusalem right now. It's not that. And he kind of rebukes his brothers and he says, well, your appointed time is always here. And he's saying that because he's saying, you don't really care about God's appointed time. You're not, you're not worried about God's appointed time, so your time's always here because it doesn't matter. You, you don't really care about when God wants you to do things in his timing, you just are going to do whatever you want to do. And then he says, besides, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Which is another interesting statement. Because, like, why, why does Jesus tell the brothers, the world cannot hate you? Um, he doesn't give us the answer here, but if you look throughout the rest of Scripture, the answer becomes pretty clear. And I'll, I'll show you further on, but I just want to point it out here. The rest of Scripture says the world cannot hate them because they've become just like the rest of the world. That's why they don't care about God's timing. That's why they don't care about God's plans or purposes They've become just like the rest of the world. That's why the world can't hate them, because they're just like them. And so the world won't hate them. And and to tie this back to what I was saying in Romans 12, they've been conformed to the world. And that's why the world can't hate them. But Jesus says, the world can't hate you, but the world hates me. And Jesus is pointing out to his brothers, that's the reality of the situation. That it's not that if Jesus heads into these huge crowds of people and does his thing, that everybody's going to be like, oh, Jesus, and they're all going to flock to him. Jesus says, actually, if I go into all these huge crowds of people and do my thing, they're going to do what? They're going to kill me which is what we read at the beginning where he said, I lost my clicker, Shar. Um, where it says why he didn't go to Jerusalem. It says Jesus was hanging around in Galilee because he would not go to Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And they were seeking to kill him. Why? Because they hated him. And so Jesus is telling his brothers, actually, if I head to Jerusalem, to this huge crowd of people, and I do my thing in front of 
for the world to see they're not going to turn and follow me. They're actually going to kill me. And it's not that time either. And he says, the world hates him. Why? Because I testify about it, about the world, that its works are evil. So that's why the world hates me so much, Jesus says. I, I go out into the world and I say, you have, you're a sinner. <laughs> and you're living a life that's dishonoring to God. And you're leading a life, living a life that's leading to destruction. And because Jesus is saying that, they hate him. Because the world never wants to hear that, right? I mean, the, what, what the world wants to hear is, you're basically good, pretty decent. Actually, you're better than good. You're amazing. And you know what you're doing? Like, you're just doing great. You just keep on doing what you're doing. And, and if you go out and you speak that message, people will love you. And, and if you talk to people, you say, like, you've got, like, seeds of goodness inside of you. You've got all of this goodness, and, and you're so powerful, and you're so strong. And, like, people will flock and say, this is great. And Jesus says, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm testifying against the world. I'm a, on the witness stand, testifying against the world and saying, you're guilty. And the world hates me for it. And I want to hang on this for a little bit just because I think, I think this makes us uncomfortable when we recognize this is what Jesus is saying because I think most of us, including myself, have made this mistake over the years where we think, well, if, if people could just see Jesus and hear him, they would love him, Right? Like, if people really could truly see Jesus and hear him and see the things that he did, they would, they would just get excited and they would follow him and they would love him. And Jesus says, no, actually the world hates me. And, and the problem is, is when we think that everybody should just kind of love Jesus, when people see Jesus and they react, and they react strongly, it's like, I don't want that then we start to think, well, maybe we need to like, market Jesus differently, right? We kind of become like the brothers and say, like, well, maybe we need to like, have Jesus say this and this and kind of tone this down. We'll put this off to the side a little bit and we'll kind of change things up to make it so that the world loves Jesus and so that they'll kind of flock to Jesus and they'll think he's great. And Jesus says, even if you do that, the world still will hate me because I'm still, as Jesus, I'm still going to tell the world, you're a sinner. You're on the path of destruction. You're dishonoring God. You need a Savior. You need to repent because you have no Jesus without Him being a Savior. And you have no Savior without being a sinner. And so again, the same thing we talked about last week, there's nothing we can do to make Jesus inoffensive because the world hates him. And, and this has kind of some deep personal applications for each one of us because John, the one who wrote this gospel, he wrote some other letters and here's what he says in one of his letters. He says, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
don't be surprised, people of God, that the world hates you. And even Jesus, later on in the gospel, he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore, that's why the world hates you. And so, when the world hates the one that you follow, guess what happens? It, it hates you as well. And, and again, I think that, that gets to this wrong feeling we have deep down inside where we think, like, if, if I acted like Jesus, right? If I acted perfectly like Jesus out in the world, if I talked like Him and, and acted like Him and had mannerisms like Him, wouldn't people love me? Wouldn't people be drawn to me and then drawn to Jesus? And Jesus says, no, because the world hated me. And actually, the more you become like Jesus, guess what's going to happen? The more you'll be hated by the world. And so John says, don't be surprised then when the world hates you because it hates the one that you follow. The one that you're becoming more like. And that brings to another, I think, really convicting uh, portion, application, is what does it mean if the world doesn't hate you? What if the world kind of likes you? (laughs) And the world's like, you're a pretty great person. We love you. You're like one of us. Or, what, yeah, what if the world loved you as its own? Following the logic of the passage, it means that you've probably become too much like the world. Or too, still too much like the world. And it means, just like Jesus' brothers, it means that you've probably become so much like the world that the world now cannot hate you. And it almost means, I was thinking, like, what if it means that we've almost reworded the the Heidelberg Catechism a little bit? Like, what's your only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to the world, not to Christ. And it also means if the world loves you and thinks you're you're really great, um, it, it also means that you've probably stopped talking about sin and evil and wickedness. Because that's why they hated Jesus, right? He says, the world hates me. Why? Because I testify against it that its works are evil. And so, if we go out into the world and we stop talking about sin and and evil and and wickedness, of course they're going to like us. Because we're not convicting them of their sin. And yet Jesus said, that's what I did. So if we go out in the world and we want to act like Jesus, what are we called to do? We're called to speak, testify against the world about its sin and its evil and wickedness. And, and besides that, if, if we go out into the world and, and we don't actually talk about sin and evil and wickedness and the world loves us for that, that's fine, but then we've also lost the gospel. Because there is no gospel apart from con- people being convicted of their sins. Because you don't need a Savior unless, you have, unless you're a sinner. 
And another great quote I, I got this week was, the gospel cannot be faithfully preached without summoning the whole world as guilty to the judgment seat of God. That's required in order to preach the gospel. And then to, to kind of wrap all of this into, into a bow, if you are recognizing in yourself kind of this being conformed to the world and, and that you're becoming just like the rest of the world so that the world doesn't hate you, the other problem is, is what? Well, if you've been conformed to the world, then you're now going to also be blinded to be able to see God's will and God's plan and God's timing in, in your life. You, you'll, you're going to miss it. You will never be able to discern God's will if you're like the rest of the world. You, you'll be like Jesus' brothers who are just out of step with it. They're, they're, they're out of step with reality and they're out of step with God's plan and God's purposes. And they're like, do this, do this. And, and they did that because they were so much like the world they didn't care about God's plans and purposes. They just did what the world said to do or what they wanted to do. So if they thought it was a good idea, they just went and did it rather than asking God, is this a good idea? And then trying to walk in step with that. And what's really hard is once you get down in that spiral of kind of worldliness and not being able to understand God's plans and purposes, it's really hard to get out of that because you're blinded to it. Your heart's been hardened to it. And yet, the other part of this passage is Jesus is repeatedly showing himself that he's, he's not of this world. And he's not conformed to the world around him, which is why the world hates him, and which is also why he can see God's plans and perfect uh, uh, God's plan and leading perfectly. Right? He he knows the Father's plan. He knows the Father's will. He knows the Father's timing, and he's committed to following it. And that's why he eventually goes to the feast. Right? Because if we read, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus went. But notice he went. Not publicly, but he went in private. And this isn't Jesus contradicting himself, saying, well, it's not my time. He's saying, it's not my time to go to the feast now. I'm not going to go to the feast when you tell me to go to the feast, brothers. (laughs) I'm going to go to the feast when my father tells me to go to the feast. I'm going to do it in his timing. And when I do go to the feast, I'm not going to go to the feast and make myself public and show myself to the world through all my signs and miracles like you want me to. When I do go to the feast, I'm going to do it according to the Father's plan, which is that I'm still going to do it in private. Because Jesus Jesus is not of this world and He does things the way the Father told Him in the timing the Father has told Him. And so He said... It's again showing this commitment. Jesus has said, Father, I will go where you tell me to go. I will do what you tell me to do, and I will say what you tell me to say. And I'll do it all in the timing in which you choose. And one of the really powerful things uh, I recognize, or it was brought to my attention this week, is one of the really powerful things is Eventually, Jesus will go into Jerusalem and he will reveal himself to the whole world. But he won't do it the way his brothers wanted him to. 
He's not going to go into Jerusalem amidst huge crowds and, and do it with signs and miracles. Jesus would go into Jerusalem, reveal himself to the world according to God's purpose and plan, which means he was going to do it by hanging on a cross for the whole world to see. And he was going to reveal himself to the whole world in Jerusalem by rising again from the dead for the whole world to see because that was the Father's perfect plan. That was his timing. And Jesus was committed to doing it that way. And what's almost scary is that so many people saw that perfect plan and timing and because they were so conformed to the world, they looked at it and they said, well, this is all stupid. This is foolishness. They, did, they looked at Jesus hanging on the cross and Jesus' resurrection and they were like, this is, there's nothing good about this. There's nothing glorious about this. That's just a fool hanging on a cross. Or this is just a hated man hanging on a hated cross. There's nothing good in it because they were so conformed to the world. They saw no good in that. But for those that weren't conformed to the world, those whose the Holy Spirit had worked in their heart, transformed their mind, their minds had been transformed by the Word of God, they saw Christ hanging on the cross. They saw His resurrection from the dead. And in that they saw not foolishness and failure, but they saw glory and beauty and life. And, and we need to be able to see that and say that was God's perfect plan. That was God's perfect timing. And, and, and see that and say this is God's plan. This is His kingdom coming and His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And then trust that He's continuing to do that, carry that out in our own lives and in our families and our churches as well. Let's come to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come into Your presence again thankful for Your grace, Your mercy, Your patience in our lives. Father, when we're honest with ourselves, we know that we often, every one of us, often lives our lives according to our own plans, our own purposes, our own wills. We, we do live our lives as if we are our own or if we belong to the world. And we make a mess of things. So Father, we, we just confess that to you. We, we know that doesn't bring any glory or honor to you. It's not only just disobedient to you, but it leads us down into to destruction and leads things into such a mess. So Father, we, we, just, we ask that you would come and you'd forgive us for our own hardness of heart, our own rebellion, our own foolishness of thinking we know how to do things better than you. So Father, forgive us for that, but, but even more than just forgive us, Father, we ask that you would you'd send your spirit to work in our hearts anew, that you would continue to transform us and, and shape us so that we would increasingly admit that we're not our own but belong to you. Father, work in us by your spirit so that we would increasingly do what you've told us to do and go where you've told us to go and say what you've told us to say. Father, we know that's what's best for us. We know that's what brings glory and honor to you. So, Father, work in us through your Spirit so that we would do that. 
help us to keep in step with your spirit as we leave from here and go back to our, our homes and our families and our places of work. Father, may, may we go there trusting in you to give us strength, trusting in you to provide for us, and trusting in you to receive all the glory and the honor and the praise through our lives. Father, may we live as people who are yours and not the world's. And all God's people said, amen.